0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics. Treatment for varicose veins and spider veins. Also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at CorridorVein and CorridorAesthetics.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll find out about the first ever Iowa Black Farmers Conference taking place December 16th in Des Moines. But first... The new feature film Knee High, which debuts at the Varsity Theater in Des Moines on December 10th, tells an Iowa story, was created by many Iowa creatives, and was shot in and around Madrid. The budget was also homegrown largely through crowdfunding. The film begins with a funeral. Cal Montgomery has been farming with his grandfather, but when his grandfather dies suddenly, Cal learns that the farm is deeply in debt and at risk. Here's a moment from the film when Cal and his grandmother try to communicate about finances. We fell behind and... How far
2: behind? Months.
3: But how much?
1: More than we have.
2: There has to be something I can do. I
3: don't I don't know what, but something
1: This is not all on you. It isn't. That is a moment from the new Iowa-made feature film, Knee High, and the force behind this film is writer, director, and producer, Marissa Vaughn. Hello, Marissa.
4: Hey, how are you?
1: Good, thank you so much for being here. So, you grew up in Ottomwa, Iowa. When did you start to get interested in filmmaking?
4: I think I started being interested in
1: films and music videos, probably when I was like 17-ish. And growing up in Ottumwa, it may be hard to to see a future where you can be a filmmaker. Tell me what you did to get where you are today. (laughs) Definitely a weird place to decide to be a filmmaker in, but there
4: were some horror filmmakers in the area um, that were making horror shorts, horror features. that, That was super inspiring to me, to see people making movies there. In our tiny little corner of Iowa, but I knew I had to pursue an education because I had no idea what I was doing. So where did you go to school? I moved to movie capital of the world, Orlando, Florida. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and tell me how you started thinking about yourself as a, a filmmaker. So you you learned a lot of the the tricks of the trade, but tell me how you started envisioning your future. I don't know that I really saw myself as a
4: filmmaker until post-college when I was figuring out how to make shorts on my own without the support of the educational system and like the amazing studio, the gear, all the stuff that, you know, we had in college. Um, and I don't think I really start to to see myself as a filmmaker until after college when I had to figure out how to do all of that with no support of a college where I had to, you know, find crew, find gear, find locations, do all of that without any guidance. Um, So the first film where I was like, oh man, I'm like, I'm making a film, (laughs) was my first project out of college, which was a short film called Lunation that I shot in Indianapolis.
1: Well, and now you live in California. You've been out in California for the last five years. Um, You're not yet at a point where making a feature film is going to pay all the bills. What do you do for your day job? What do you do day to day? I hope that day soon. I really do.
4: Um, I also work as a first assistant director, so I am on set all the time. I'm just not. I haven't stepped fully into the directing role yet, but I think the day's coming.
1: I'm I'm trying to make the day come soon. So this film, Knee High, Uh, the, the concept for the film was originally also the concept for a short film that you wrote and directed in 2019. Tell me about that.
4: Yeah, so the film started as a short, which I think I wrote in 2018 or something, and then we shot. And it really, that short stemmed from just seeing an image of a very specific scene in the short in my head, which was the uh, children of divorce know the child exchange where you have to you go to a public place and like mom drops the kid off or dad drops the kid off so you go to your other parents house Um, and then I had to develop the story around that
1: and so it doesn't it doesn't start with a farm it starts with a
4: family yeah it starts with a family and I think that's the heart of the feature as well
1: so tell me, I, I just gave the, the rough outline of this story, um, but tell me a little bit more about Cal Montgomery. So he's been farming with his grandfather. His grandfather dies suddenly, and Cal is trying to figure out how to run this family farm, how to save this family farm. Tell me a little bit more uh, about Cal and, and his life.
4: Yeah, so Cal has only ever known the farm, he grew up there. His, it's it's alluded to in the film but his father's actually passed away when he was a child so his grandparents raised him on this farm it's all he's known he's never really seen a future outside of it he hasn't seen a lot of examples of what other people his age are doing Um, and he's trying to navigate what to do now that he doesn't have that guiding light in his life of his grandfather and he's trying to navigate the grief of losing Mel, as well as parenthood and finding himself and considering maybe there's a life outside the farm.
1: Right. And he's a young man. He's in his 20s. He's a young father, a young man. Yes. He uh, and his ex have a child who's almost nine years old, and they were high school sweethearts, and their child was born when they were in high school, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell me why making a short that was inspired by that moment of, of passing a child from one parent to the other when the the parents have been divorced. Tell me how that short became a feature film. When we finished
4: the short, it's hard to describe. It just didn't feel like the end of the story. And I felt like there was just so much more to explore. And I was always thinking about Cal's life outside of the moments that take place in the short. And what else could be going on in his life? And I just felt like there was a bigger, longer story to be told with it. So I I took my sweet time, took my four years to figure out what that story was. Um, And I think we found it and found the truth of the story to expand it in a way that didn't feel overdone.
1: Now, setting out to make a feature film is a very ambitious thing to do, uh, especially without a studio behind you. Tell me how or why you decided to go it alone first. (laughs) Uh, Delusion, truly.
4: (laughs) Uh, I just it was time to tell the story. I felt ready as a filmmaker after all the shorts that I've made with the team that worked on this film. And I am a big believer in do things even when you're afraid because you don't grow in your comfort zone so i was absolutely horrified every (laughs) every second of like pre-production up until we were on set um but we had a really great community the film community in iowa is amazing and people really were connecting with the story and with the idea of something being made in iowa so we got the support we needed to financially make the
1: movie well how did you raise the money
4: um, we used a crowdfunding campaign on the site Seed and Spark, which is it's the only crowdfunding platform that is specifically for filmmakers. And they give you a ton of feedback in the beginning to help you hone your your video and all your copy and all that to make sure it's going to resonate.
1: So with a, a very specific crowdfunding platform like that uh how do you reach out to people who do you reach out to to help you reach your goals
4: oh my gosh i made that crowdfunding my full-time job for the whole month we ran it i didn't do any other work i just was at my computer i was on the phone and truly it was i think everyone i've ever met in my entire life is who i emailed and reached out to um specifically people who I thought would resonate with the film or people who knew me as a filmmaker or as someone they'd worked with on set. And it was just truly a full-time eight hours a day, emailing people, calling people, just straight up asking for money, which is really hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, we're going to bring your cinematographer into the conversation in just a few minutes. But before we do that, you mentioned that you made this film with a lot of the same people that you worked with on the short film back in 2018, 2019. So tell me a little bit about that. That's a long time ago. People move, people move on. How did you reassemble the same crew? Yeah,
4: it's a, a few of our people did move on and, you know, have gone to LA or gone to Atlanta or have left the industry altogether as sometimes happens. Um, but I have continued working with like the core crew that made knee high since we made that short film. We've made four other short films together, all of them in Iowa. Um, and I've, they're my friends. They're the people that I like working with and they're the people that I like hanging out with. So it's been easy to stay in touch with them and make sure that we're always looking for the next thing to make.
1: So you've been in California now for five years, but you're still telling Iowa stories. Tell me why it's so important to you to tell Iowa stories.
4: I just don't think there's enough of them on screen. There's it's there's such a wealth of stories and of characters in Iowa and in the Midwest as a whole that I just don't think are tapped into or really utilized. And I just, I know that growing up, I wanted to see more Midwestern stuff on screen because there's so much you know, glamour, the people, the East Coast, the West Coast, but the middle gets ignored a little bit. So that's always been my goal is to like, find people that feel like your friends, your neighbors, your family,
1: and put them on screen. Writing this story, I mean, you must have written the screenplay in California. How did you connect with Iowa and, and farming when you were writing?
4: Um, That's a great question. <laughs> so developing the story before actually like, I would say put pen to paper, but I definitely typed the entire thing. Uh, a lot of the story got developed with Michael, who plays Cal. He helped me really hone in on the story. Um, and it was a lot of looking at pictures and looking at paintings and listening to like music that I wouldn't normally listen to to help kind of get into that mindset of the Midwest, of Iowa, of like just remembering where the story is and who these people are. So it was a lot of playlist building for writing sessions and for story development sessions. And just, I think the Iowa is like at the core of my being. So that's inescapable for me.
1: We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Marissa Vaughn. She is the writer, director, and producer of the new feature-length film, Knee High. It debuts at the Varsity Theater in Des Moines on December 10th, and there's a few tickets left for that premiere. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nabby. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we're going to find out about the first ever Iowa Black Farmers Conference. It's taking place December 16th in Des Moines. Right now, however, we're talking about a new feature film. It is called Knee High, and the film begins with a family tragedy that puts the future of a family and the future of a farm at risk. It is an Iowa story, and it was made by Iowans. And and I want to play another clip of from the film here. Cal Montgomery is at the center of this story, and he's been farming with his grandfather, who passes away suddenly. While he is reeling from not just losing this man he was so close to, but also learning about the financial crisis that the family farm is in. In. Uh, we also see Cal co parenting a young son with his ex who's recently moved further away from the farm, which has caused a strain on Cal and all of his relationships. This clip shows Cal's ex trying to connect with him over the grief he's going through.
3: How are you doing with everything? With- I'm fine. Avery's handling it pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, he still asks about him sometimes, but... Really? Yeah. He misses him.
2: What do you tell him when he asks?
3: Jujima went to heaven. What do you tell him?
1: That's a moment from the new film, Knee High. With me this hour is the writer, director, and producer, Marissa Vaughn. And also, Bruce James Bales is here. He's the cinematographer, producer, and editor for Knee High. Hello, Bruce.
3: Hey, Charity. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here. And uh, you grew up in Bettendorf, Iowa. When did you first get excited about filmmaking?
3: Well, I've been interested in... Films and making images for pretty much my whole life. I remember When my sister got engaged, uh, my brother-in-law sent us a videotape introducing himself called hijack Um on vhs tape and I remember watching that like 11 years old and thinking it was the coolest thing ever that I could get to know someone through this video and Uh, that's where the spark really happened and then I stole my Friends vhs camera started making weird shorts with my friends and then moved on to making skate videos. Um and that's really where my love of the moving image like, really blossomed.
1: All right. But you it took you a while to convince yourself that this is what you were going to do for a living.
3: Oh, 100%. I didn't really know living in Iowa and then moving to Pittsburgh for school that you could do this as a job. And then when I got to Pittsburgh, I was exposed to a lot of great filmmakers really early on my freshman year and helped on a couple of films that were shot on 35 millimeter film. And that was so magical for me that I, I really kind of became obsessed with it. And even though I was studying English literature in my undergrad, I was doing films on the weekends with my friends, still making skate videos and really trying to digest as many film-related things as I could. And Pittsburgh has a great film scene, so I was really blessed to be there. And after college, uh, couldn't find a job, and so kind of dove into video production a little bit more, music videos like Marissa, and then um, just found my way there, and just kept finding my way back to a camera.
1: Well, tell me when you and Marissa connected.
3: We worked on the, a set of a web series, I think, in 2014 with Michael also. Um, He's and, the, the lead actor in this film. Correct, yes. And Marissa and I really connected because we, I think we were at the same points in our careers. Um, we were doing work for other people. We were working on other people's sets. We were both pretty green, myself way more green than she was, um, which is another reason I latched on to her. Just she was so knowledgeable. But we, I think we both wanted more. We both wanted to tell our own stories. We both wanted to find our own voice. And it was just the right time to start collaborating.
1: And you had worked with Marissa on the short version of Knee
3: Yes, correct, um, in 2019.
1: All right, so do you remember when she got in touch with you and said, hey, I'm going to make a feature film?
3: Yeah, to be honest, um, and I've told Marissa this, I, I wasn't really interested at first. I thought, I, I thought that we'd, you know, did the world justice and that we explored Nehi and and that family and that farm. But then I read the script and I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, And I was convinced immediately that we needed to make it. She wrote such a good script that um, really surprised me in so many different ways that I had to do it.
1: So Marissa, tell me about activating this team back in Iowa. All right. Bruce was a little skeptical at first. How did you get the band back together? (laughs)
4: I, Bruce was skeptical, and I'm glad that the script convinced him, because I don't, this movie wouldn't exist without him. Um, it was very much, I the, put the bat signal out, and just emailed everybody, and sent them the script to try and get everybody back on board, and luckily the story connected with everybody, and everybody was excited to help add a chapter to the knee-high story. <laughs>
1: Now, we talked earlier about crowdfunding to to make the budget work for this film. And Marissa, of course, filming is incredibly expensive. So you shot this in a relatively short period of time. What, 17 days total? 15 and a half. Okay, 15 and a half. And you shot it in and around Madrid. Tell me about where the film is set.
4: The film is set in Iowa, Just in any small town, but since we filmed so much in Madrid and Ballard, um, we've just committed to it being set in Madrid because it's such a cute little town and it has the same sense of community that we need for the story. And we landed there because of the farm. The farm plays such a huge part in the film that it's almost its own character. And the Williams farm where we shot was, from the first time I saw it, it was perfect. Way back in 2018 when I scouted it.
1: Well, so how did you connect with the Williams cuz the farm is beautiful and and you also shot in their home? Yeah, we did. <laughs> All right, how did you <laughs> how did you make that connection?
4: Um, so Produce Iowa has a locations database on their website and I just listed every farm when I was location scouting for the short and Liz Gilman kind of helped me narrow it down. She's like these are the people that I've actually spoken to her before. And she's like, here's their contact information. Good luck. (laughs) And so I called all these people, emailed all these people, and then spent a few days back in 2018, just going door to door to all these farms. And everybody was just so nice and so excited to just give me a tour of their farm and their home. Um, And we saw a lot of beautiful farms, but the Williams, their home and their farm was just perfect it felt so right and they were so open and generous with their space with their time and it was just a perfect fit
1: well now farming is a full-time job so bruce as you guys were shooting this film over this 15-day period um the williams were still farming right so i mean this was a working farm while you were shooting
3: uh yeah it was uh it played a role in the film actually we were able to capture some things um for some sort of segues and some b-roll segments that we wouldn't have been able to capture otherwise we were able to get our main character actually in a combine driving a combine um, film harvest and there's something about that for me that's so visually beautiful growing up in Iowa and always specifically around harvest time driving around it's so beautiful to see the combines and the dust they kick up and you know it's sunsets the Iowa sunsets that are so memorable and so in that way, it really played into our film uh, in a really interesting way, but it was also amazing because Larry, the, the owner of the farm, would he'd be so busy, but then we'd ask him to do something and he would just get it done so quickly. I'm really convinced that farmers can get anything accomplished
1: (laughs) so i mean in in so many ways looking at the film it's a really really beautiful and beautifully shot film and to me as a lifelong iowan it really looked like a, a love letter to iowa and to the iowa sky which you know i i love our skies so much bruce tell me how you thought about filming filming iowa putting it on camera because i know that our our beauty is underrated
3: yeah, I couldn't agree more, Charity, and that was in the forefront of my mind during pre-production. And you know, with mother nature, you kind of get what you get, and we were so lucky, I can't say that enough. It rained for like an hour on our entire shoot, and we were blessed with amazing sunrises and amazing sunsets. And, and you
1: caught a rainbow?
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh it was it was unreal, honestly. We we were gifted so many great colors in the sky and so many sunsets that were honestly in line with the mood and tone of the scenes that we were filming which was I mean I'm still just baffled by that and just so grateful for that but really I think we as a crew did our due diligence and we were rewarded with it I think rewarded because of it I think we planned and we we knew what time we wanted to be outside we knew what scenes wanted to take place at those really beautiful times of day and Though doing that is a risk because as everybody knows, sunset and sunrise don't last very long right. and scenes often will take a few hours. so we really had to tailor production to be able to capture those moments at those times of day and Marissa, I, I can't you know say how grateful I am for Marissa for like listening to all my late night conversations with her where I'm like, no, we need to be outside at seven in the morning because this and this, and she made it happen. And we, we worked extensively on the schedule to give ourselves the opportunities to really capture those beautiful moments.
1: Wow, well, the lack of rain hasn't, uh, hasn't been exactly a boon for most farmers in Iowa, but I can understand why that was so valuable for you. I, Marissa, you must have had a very intimate relationship with a weather app.
4: Yeah, uh, just checking it constantly, hoping it wouldn't rain, because we all know Iowa weather. If you don't like it, wait five
1: minutes. So tell me about capturing that rainbow <laughs> because I saw it. I thought, are you kidding me? I can't believe that, that they got to to have that moment. Bruce, what happened?
3: Well, we were filming uh, B-roll of the soybean field and uh, we're, our backs were to the rainbow. And I don't know, Marissa, you might know. I don't remember who said something. But immediately I just like spun the camera around and started filming as quickly as i could and honestly it was one of the moments on set where we actually all got a second to take a break and really think about what we were doing and it i feel like that moment really grounded us in a really beautiful way because i think we all realized in that moment how lucky we were i mean i think it's magic anytime you get a scene anytime you get a shot anytime you get a take and um that's what appeals to me about filmmaking. And I remember it being one of those moments where looking at the sky and just being like, we're meant to be here, we're doing the right thing. And just being extremely grateful for that.
1: Marissa, what do you remember about it?
4: Um, I remember screeching because I saw the rainbow and was so excited. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, after the screeching, everything else, very calm, very serene moment and (laughs) definitely, definitely grounding. I was like, Oh, this is a sign. Like it, the rainbow landed in the silo. Like it couldn't have been more perfect.
1: So you spent just a little over two weeks doing this filming. And I mean, Marissa, that's not very long. You're asking a lot of the people who are working with you, the actors and the crew, how did it go? It went
4: so well. Everybody brought the absolute best energy to set every day. And I think we had so much fun which is such, I hate to say it's a rarity, but it really is a rarity for set to actually get to like have fun and enjoy the process because it's filmmaking is, it's brutal. It, the days can be grueling. They can be so long. The weather can be unpredictable. Everything always goes wrong, but everybody came in with the mindset that we're here to tell this story. We're here to make this movie and we're here to put good energy into it and put our hearts into it so that we create something beautiful and meaningful. And it was just, the whole process was a joy. It's still so surreal to be able to look back and be like, we made a movie. We made a feature film in 15 days and we had a good time doing it. It's crazy.
1: So the film debuts at the Varsity Theater on December 10th. As I mentioned earlier, there are still just a very few tickets left for for your <laughs> premiere. What's next for Knee High, Marissa? Yes we do have a handful of tickets left and I'm
4: really really excited and grateful to the varsity for hosting us for that screening um, Next up is festivals we've submitted to about 20 of them and I think the first the first ones we'll hear back from are starting next week in early December We're hoping to do hit some of the higher tier festivals and then close out our festival run next fall in Iowa and then a regional theatrical run where we play at theaters throughout the Midwest and then uh, hopefully we'll have a sale by then hopefully somebody will really connect with the movie and want to find its permanent home online
1: what would you like aspiring filmmakers in Iowa to know about uh, your experience and and why maybe they shouldn't give up Marissa I'll let you go first and then you Bruce
4: (laughs) yeah it's Truly don't give up. Um, And don't be afraid to ask for help. There's so many amazing filmmakers in Iowa. There's so many talented actors, crew members. There's beautiful locations. It's hard and scary to ask for help making your movie and telling your story, but it's worth it to get your story out and to share it with people. And just start small, I think is the best advice. Because if I dove into a feature rather than doing a ton of shorts first we wouldn't have this product so start small ask for help connect with your community and
1: support the other filmmakers around you because they're all so talented what do you want to add to that bruce because you you live and work in des moines as a cinematographer
3: yeah and i think a lot of Marissa's sentiments were spot on but i would say that think long term don't think short term uh filmmaking is is hard i mean you know, I'm 10 years in here and not satisfied at all with where I'm at. I, there's so much to learn. There's so much to try. There's so much to do that I think a lot of people who want instant gratification can kind of get this, you know, disenchanted with filmmaking. But if you dedicate a long-term portion of your life, you're going to be satisfied, you know, five, 10 years down the road because it's, it's an art form that takes a lot. It, it takes a lot to build your voice. It takes a lot to find what you like. And... I really would just implore people to keep going, to keep making stories, to, to fail, to make something they don't like, because you're gonna learn something, you're gonna learn so much more from something that doesn't work than from something that does work. And to not, you know, get discouraged and to just keep showing up day after day. Um, that's it, I think filmmaking is a, is a long form art form. And if you dedicate that time, you're gonna eventually be really satisfied with where you're at.
1: Now, there's still plenty of work to be done with the, the festival. Uh, circuit and and promoting the film knee high Uh, and we only have about 30 seconds left Uh, Marissa the two of you have a project that you're planning to work on together what's next for you?
4: We do Uh, Bruce comes out here on Friday and we're going to shoot a short film called Given that I was hired to direct and I was lucky enough to get to hire Bruce on.
1: All right, exciting Marissa thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having us on Marissa Vaughn is the writer, director, and producer of the feature film, Knee High, and Bruce, thank you. Thank you so much. Bruce James Bales is the cinematographer, producer, and editor for Knee High, and he lives and works in Des Moines. Knee High debuts at the Varsity Theater in Des Moines on December 10th, and there are still just a few tickets available for that premiere. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to find out about the first ever Iowa Black Farmers Conference coming up in Des Moines on December 16th. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. There are not a whole lot of black farmers in Iowa. In 2017, the U.S. Department of Agriculture reported that there were just 72 black farmers in the state. That was 005 percent of the total 143,447 producers that were counted in the state that year. The Western family grow corn and soybeans near Waterloo, and members of the family have been farming in Iowa since the Civil War. They are likely the only Black family in Iowa to own a farm for more than 150 years. Now, Todd Western III is hoping to bring Iowa's Black farmers together for the first-ever Iowa Black Farmers Conference in Des Moines on December 16th. And Todd is on the line with me. Hello, Todd.
2: Hello, Charity. How are you?
1: Good. Wonderful to have you back on the show. And we talked a lot about your family history last time you were on the show. But for people who didn't hear that conversation, tell me just a little bit about the Western family and this long legacy of farming in Iowa.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, uh, we definitely stand stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. Uh, they developed the area in Mahaska County in uh, approximately 1864. We farm 160 acres to this day in, um, in Mahaska County, and we also farm uh, farm in Waterloo, Iowa, as well for a total of 200 acres. And and so it's been a family tradition. Uh, even though I live in Minneapolis, I still get back and we farm along with my brother, my mm-hmm. brother and son. So it's it's been a, it's been a labor of love.
1: Growing up as a a black farmer in Iowa, as this, you know, has been part of your family, part of your life for so long. Tell me why it's been so important to you to continue farming, to continue that family legacy.
2: When you do the research on farming, farming in general, whether you're black or white, is very hard. Farming is very important to the economy, is very important to to humans. And because we get the food, we provide the food for human beings to eat. And then when you look at, when you segment that out and look at the black farmers in 1944, there are approximately 12% of the farming population was uh, people of color. Now today it's less than 1.4%. So when you take that in mind and then really think of the significance that I played, my family played in the part of contributing to that 1.4, we wanted to be the best farm we can be. And while we do that, we want to uplift all farming and specifically all farmers of color to let them know that it is important that we remain proud and tell our story about our farmland.
1: And there have been so many factors that have pushed farmers of color out of agriculture over the years. Some of the same forces that have pushed a lot of farmers out of business, but also some policies that have made it much harder for for black farmers to get loans and things like that over many, many years. When when you were farming with your family growing up, were there times when you thought, I wonder if we're the only black
0: farmers?
2: It was just assumed that you were. Other than other than Mike Cook, who also farms in Waterloo, Mike Cook and the Western family, at that point, we were the only people that we knew. And when you're farming, you are always got your head down and you're working hard. So you don't have a whole lot of time to look around and say, who else is there? You just assume that you're the only two. And so that's how we grew up. And then as I got older and became more aware and started telling my story. And I always try to tell people, this all started with telling my story, telling the family story. Once I tar- start telling the family story, people started to listen. And then this is how we got to this point today.
1: Now, you attended an event called the Harvest Ball, an annual event for black farmers in North Carolina not long ago. Uh, first of all, what what made you decide to attend the Harvest Ball?
2: It was... Uh, word of mouth, somebody had mentioned it, that you know there's, there's a culmination of, of at the end of the – the idea is that at the end of the harvest, you come celebrate, all the farmers come together. And it's this much, much like back in the old days where at the end of the harvest, they would come together and have a feast together. Well, it's the same premise. So every November, they call it the Harvest Ball because all the farmers, approximately 250 farmers of color come together in North Carolina, and we have a three-day conference uh, that culminates into a gala Saturday night. Uh, we put on, you know, we get rid of the, the work clothes, we put on our tuxes, and we celebrate the harvest. And so for my son and I, Todd Fourth, this was a great opportunity for us not only to see other black farmers doing well, but it was also an opportunity for them to understand that not only are there are black people in Iowa, but there are black farmers in Iowa. So it, it it was really just a very spiritual journey for us to be able to to attend that, and then now... That's that's how we got to this point. I said we need to do the same thing up up north to bring together uh, a sense of community for the black farmers here in Iowa.
1: Tell me more about what that felt like to to be in a room with two hundred other black farmers.
2: You you never you never dreamed of it because you you never you've never seen it. You knew about that farmer that there were more black farmers down south, but to actually witness farmers that farm anywhere from two hundred acres to 10,000 acres I met PJ Haney PJ Haney and Billy Bridgeforth and and mr. Boyd are some of the you know if you had a Mount Rushmore of farmers for black for black individuals these individuals would be on there. PJ Haney and Billy Bridgeforth they just uh, bought and created the first uh, river mill plant in Pine Bluff Arkansas called Arkansas River Rice. Uh, Billy Bridgeforth farms 10,000 acres. Uh, PJ Haney farms 10,000 acres over three states. And then you have smaller farmers like myself that are down there as well. So it, it was just it was just a goosebump experience to to see that much success and to see that kind of community down there.
1: Now you're an incredibly busy man <laughs> keeping keeping your career, your farm alive, taking care of your family and all of that. So you come back from this really powerful experience and think, now I'm gonna organize a conference in Iowa?
2: It's, you know, I, I think about, I tell my mom all the time, I said, I really have no idea why I'm doing this. I just know that I need to do it. And like I said, it was a spiritual, it was spiritual for me. And I, I was just led by God that said, this needs to happen because I know how important it was for my son to who's going to eventually, along with my nieces and nephews, take over the farm at some point. It's important for them not to have the same experience that I had thinking that we were the only ones. Now that my son can go down there and now eventually bring my nieces and nephew to be able to witness the same thing that, you know, this is possible. And so it, it, it just something that was on my heart and, you know, everybody has uh, that why moment. Why do I exist? Why am I on this planet? Well, this is one of my why moments.
1: So the Iowa Black Farmers Conference, it will be on December 16th at Jasper Winery in Des Moines. And and you're asking people to RSVP directly to you at toddwestern24 at gmail.com. You have put together this conference. You you've you've gotten sponsors. Practical farmers of Iowa is the major sponsor of the conference. Tell me about your vision for that day.
2: My vision is you know the purpose is number one community building this is significant because it's bringing together farmers of color who are scattered across the state to foster a sense of belonging community it's also supposed to be information sharing this platform provide access to crucial information from agricultural industry officials that might not typically come to smaller or more remote farming communities and lastly celebrating our contributions you know we will showcase significant contributions from other farmers of color um And then then the other thing is identifying, because right now I give you a perfect example is there's uh, DeAndre Harvey who farms a thousand acres in Fort Dodge. I never knew he existed. He never knew I existed. And we were similarly relatively very close, but we never knew we existed. So I found four other row crop farmers during this process. That's that is the true benefit of this is finding other farmers, bring us all together so that we know that we exist.
1: Well, that's got to be so challenging. I mean, I I quoted that statistic from the USDA back in 2017, but it's not like there's a a directory of farmers of color in Iowa. How have you found each other?
2: Literally, it's when I tell you to tell your story. I told my story, and it's one person by one person by one person, and then you have. Then I built my own sense of network. And then those network of individuals reached out and said, hey, Todd, I heard about this person. I heard about this person. And I would follow that lead. And then that's how it got me to DeAndre Harvey. Then I found out uh, uh, Miss Andrews up in Belmont, uh, Iowa, who just was given her farm, uh, her and her brother. And she said, this is perfect time because we right now we have a lot of questions. Now we've inherited this farm, what to do. And this, and these, this will serve as a great resource for them.
1: So... The conference is featuring, among other people, Dwayne Goldman, Senior Advisor for Racial Equity to U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. That's a pretty big deal. How did you convince a senior advisor for Tom Vilsack to come to the conference? You,
2: You know, the beauty of it is he called me and told me, Todd, I heard you're having something. Tell me what I need to do. I met him actually at the Harvest Ball. All my connections... That I've been able to make and to be able to make this successful came from the harvest ball. So again, it gets back to once a sense of community was built, once I was part of that community, we all helped each other. And so that is my long-term goal of this: is that this conference conference will foster, you know, lasting connections, promote more inclusivity, and perhaps inspire similar initiatives in other states. And um, you know, it will. This is going to be great. I just I'm so excited. I get goosebumps every time I think about it. But you know, Dr. Dwayne Goldman is a good friend of mine, and actually he, well, I won't, I won't bore you with that story, but he actually worked with Vilsack way back in the day and asked about, are there any black farmers in Iowa? And at that time, uh, in Vilsack said, you know, I think there might be one. And when he reached out to our family, my father had just passed, and so he reached out, and so this was years ago. And so then years ago to find out that Dwayne Goldman told me that story, that, you know, he, he attempted to reach out to us but, but couldn't reach us. Mm. That, you know, that, that brought goosebumps as well. So I don't want that to happen again to any other farmer, and I want us to be inclusive, and I want us to have a great community. And then ultimately, we're all part of the bigger community where, you know, black, white, Asian, whatever, we're all a farming community, but I need to get the people of color together first to get us all assembled so we can represent as one big group and then and then be part of the bigger group.
1: So you're reaching out to as many farmers of color as you can find in Iowa, and you, you're continuing to search. So I, I assume that you want to hear from more. If anybody's listening right now who can help you make connections, right? If
2: you know of any, if you know of any uh, people of color that farm, uh, whether it be fruits and vegetables, whether it be row crop farming, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to have to meet you. toddwestern gmail is my dot uh, com is my email. Uh, would love to meet and greet you.
1: Besides Farmers of Color, who else do you hope will attend?
2: Um, I hope um, officials. So right now, you know, we have representatives from the NRCs, FSA, Iowa Finance Authority, Pacto Farmers of Iowa, and of course you mentioned before the USDA. So we, we hope anybody that's interested in helping uplift uh, this conference and celebrating this conference and celebrating uh, Farmers of Color uh, we, we, we want you to attend, no matter your, your, your skin color, we, we, we want you to attend, but we definitely want to get the word out to the people, uh, farmers of color in the state of Iowa, because just like, I mean, I can't, that example of DeAndre Harvey, he, he and I had no idea we existed. That I don't want to continue. I want us to know each other and to have a sense of community.
1: This is the Iowa Black Farmers Conference. Are people from outside the state? I'm sure that there are farmers of color in Illinois and Minnesota. Obviously, you're in Minnesota and Missouri and South Dakota. Are you hoping that the people from outside the state will also make this connection?
2: Yes, because uh, the Kansas Black Farmers Association will be attending uh, some individuals from Nebraska. So the word has gotten out literally all all over the United States through my connections with the USDA and other agencies. So the word has gotten out. So we will have representation from Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota. Um, I don't have Illinois. So anybody listening in Illinois, we need some <laughs> Illinois representation.
1: All right. Well, we'll see what we can do about that. Um, I, I understand your goal for this day to bring people together, to learn together, to make these connections, to build this community. What do you hope you accomplish that, that you can take into the future from this day?
2: Number one, I want to make this an annual event. I want to make this an annual event. Number two, I want to create a Rolodex, a network, so that so that it exists in perpetuity and that is out there in the cloud so that, you know, my son, my great-grandson, you know, 50 years from now, if he wants to access or reach out to somebody, there's information available. And they don't have to go through all this hard work that I went to. And, and the other thing is just uplifting the contributions of black farmers in the state of Iowa.
1: Now that you have made so many connections, not just with farmers of color in Iowa, but farmers of color all over the country and, and going to the Harvest Ball, how does that change how you feel? How has that changed you
2: It's given me a sense of responsibility, a sense of pride, um, a sense of belonging, um, and I'm I'm also the responsibility comes to honoring our ancestors uh, that you know that settled our farm in 1863. They traveled out of slavery from Virginia to Iowa and settled in Iowa, and so you can imagine how you know just the experience of buying your way out of slavery in the late 1700s and then traveling across the country. And then having the audacity to settle in Iowa, and 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 be prosperous and and hold that for as many years as we've done. You know that's that's what I feel.
1: That's so powerful, and I I can imagine that the rest of your family partakes in this uh, this sense of community and and finally not feeling like the only ones.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's um. I, I, again, I can't. It, it's going to be a great event. It's going to be something, again, this is setting us up for information for our next generation. Um, so the individuals that show up at this conference, we want this to be annual. We want this to be informational so that their, their next generation, the, the succession plans, that will all be uh, available for them to partake in.
1: Todd Western, thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: Thank you for your support.
1: Todd Western III, we've been talking about the first ever Iowa Black Farmers Conference. It's coming up in Des Moines on December 16th. And Todd would love for people who want to attend to RSVP by December 11th. You can send him an email, toddwestern24 at gmail.com. You can also find out more about this event in the Gazette, the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Aaron Jordan has done a great deal of reporting on black farmers in Iowa and on the Western family and specifically on this conference as well. So you can go to thegazette.com. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. The show is produced by Samantha McIntosh, Daniel, Danny Gear. I was going to say Danielle, Danny Gear, <laughs> Caitlin Troutman. We also get support from our interns, Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. You never need to miss an episode of the show. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebby.